0: Do you fear that the world is coming to an end? Are you looking for answers? Are you concerned about the rise of lawlessness? There is hope. God is an all-powerful God. God is a God who has planned the end from the very beginning. God is in control of all things. Well, amen. Good morning. You know, I, I, I really like social media. Um, I like to watch videos. and I, I just got to read one to you. This was so good last week. There was a picture of someone's Bible open, and they're probably in this room today, so I won't embarrass you. But there was a picture of their Bible open, and then my book, my new book, uh, One Nation Without Law, was laying over the front of it. And I thought, well, that's really cool. Somebody's, like, doing that. And then I read the article that they wrote here. I'm normally not this vulnerable, but I missed church this morning because I just couldn't get out of bed. Anybody relate to that? Anybody ever have those? I have that every Sunday. I'm here. Okay. Let me go on. I just couldn't get out of bed. Not sick, just too comfortable. Rolled out of bed, decided to live stream from the sofa. This is what technology is for, right? So glad I did. Pastor Phil dropped some serious knowledge on the total eclipse tomorrow. Mind blown. Wasn't at all interested in the eclipse until now. My God is so incredible. So glad to call Influence Church home and receive revelation directly from him week after week, even on a sofa. I love it. Love it. You know, the thing that I want to talk to you about today is uh, I want to talk to you about revelation and how God works and how you mature in your faith. What a lot of people think is coming, becoming a mature Christian is how long you've been a Christian. And I will tell you, you can be a Christian your whole life and be immature. And that there are some keys that come and they're lined up with, with this idea of, of maturity, and it really starts with your position. You see, your position in the heavenly kingdom is dependent upon your action in the earthly kingdom. You see, a lot of people have the idea that if I just go through life as a Christian, when we get to heaven, every, all the, the playing field will be even, and we'll all be positionally in the same place with one another in heaven. But that is so far from the truth and so far from the Bible. What the Bible does is it reminds us that there, are, there is unmerited grace, but there's never unmerited rewards or position in the kingdom. So God will love you unconditionally. God offers salvation to you unconditionally. And without your personal merit, But in order for you to have position and reward in heaven is dependent upon what you do from a merit standpoint, that is from action here on the earthly kingdom that leverages you into the heavenly kingdom. Once you start to see that, then life makes a difference. You you stop living with this idea, well, I've always got tomorrow to follow God. I can always read the Bible tomorrow. I can always get committed tomorrow. That removes itself from your terminology because now you understand that every day is significant, that every day is a gift of God to enjoy, to have fun, to connect with friends and family, but also to leverage you into your eternal position. And once you're in your eternal position in heaven, it's fixed. I don't see anything in Scripture where we have opportunity to then advance in that position. The responsibility is proven on earth that it might be demonstrated in heaven. Now, if you're going to become mature, you have to understand something about revelation. I don't mean the book of revelation. I mean God revealing to you truth. So you have to have revelation teaching and understanding In order to unlock maturity in your life. In other words, when you read the Word of God, if you read it as a book, but God never speaks to you or reveals to you from it, then you've missed the purpose of the book. See, God is a revealer of secrets, God wants to make himself known through his Word, through his people. So when I begin to read the Word of God, you have to have revelation teaching that says, wait a minute, I think something just was revealed to me. The Spirit of God in me revealed it in my human spirit and in my mind and showed me something about who I am or what I'm supposed to do or how life is supposed to work. That's revelation teaching." Revelation understanding is I come to the place where I read it for myself and God begins to pour out from those pages truth about living that I could not have received apart from him. Sustained periods of revelation and spirituality will bring you to maturity. Let me say it again. Sustained periods of revelation and spirituality will bring you to maturity. If you want to get mature, that's the, that's the road you have to get on. So what we understand is radical obedience to Jesus brings about power in our individual lives. You don't receive the power of God because you are a Christian. You get to go to heaven on that basis but everything else has to build from there. So you ask yourself, okay, how radical am I or how radical am I willing to be or what does that even look like in my life? And we're going to talk a little bit about being radical for God today and what that might mean to you individually. I began to think about the Bible in terms of how many times it refers to three days. For example, we know the most obvious one is Jesus was crucified and he was put in the grave, and three days later he rose from the grave. So I began to think about this, and and we could go through a whole study on three days, but I realized that there are people who are one-day people, people that are two-day people, and people that are three-day people. What do I mean by that? Well, imagine if you're there waiting for Jesus to rise from the dead, and on the first day you say he's not going to do it, and you walk away. Because your faith can't sustain you to the third day. Then there are some people who are kind of second-day people, and they go, you know, I can outlast the one-day people, but I'm not committed to the third day. And so you're a second-day person. But then there were some that said, no, I'm, I'm a third-day person. I'm totally committed to waiting out and trusting in what I cannot see in order to have what I could not have apart from faith and I become a third-day person. And as I began to formulate that in my mind, I envisioned concentric circles. So I just began to draw concentric circles, and I began to think about the people that are in this circle are what we might call nominal. They're nominal Christians, okay? They know the Lord, but they're really on that outer fringe of what it means to really be committed to Christ, and then if I move that concentric circle in, which is fewer people, I believe there were people who are committed. They're really committed to the cause of Christ. They do more than just attend church when it's convenient. They do more than, you know, give a little bit of their time, a little bit of their money. They're, they're really committed to the cause of Christ. But then there's that next group, and I like to refer to them as radical. And what this means is that there's no price they won't pay. pay. They're really taking Jesus seriously, and they really want to position themselves not only here to advance the kingdom, but there they want to position themselves for opportunity in in the future kingdom of God. And so you begin to think about it's not that God's trying to remove life from you here. He's trying to give you greater life here and greater position there. Sometimes we think, well, if I'm radical, I'm not going to enjoy life. No, you're going to enjoy life more because now you're living with a purpose that is eternal in nature, and it's leading you toward a position that is eternal and fixed in the heavens. So then as I begin to take a little bit longer, I realized who are the people, if I put the world, that is people who don't know God, if I put them out here, and I say, who are they most affected by? Who's, who do they rub shoulders with the most? Well, they rub shoulders most with the nominal Christians. So their whole idea of God is this idea that, he's you know, you don't have to be that committed. You know, you don't you just get saved and go to church if you want to. Don't worry about getting in a small group. Don't worry about giving your money. Don't worry about, uh, about really believing God and trusting God and standing before the prayer wall and interceding for people. And that's what the, the impact that the nominal Christian has on the world almost nil. And they're certainly not going to talk about Jesus. They might invite you to church if there's something cool going on. But that's the only way they're going to get you there. But think about it. What would happen is this, if we began to say, if you could, if the radical group, let's just say that makes up 10%. Just to use a number. It's arbitrary. It doesn't mean anything right now. But let's say it's 10%. What if the radical core in this church would expand to 15%. So now watch the effect. The effect is now this circle becomes bigger because what they're probably going to do is not affect the nominal. They're going to affect the committed. So now this inner core becomes stronger. So if I could, I could say something like this. If the nominal Christian affects someone like this, the committed person has twice the effect, but this person here has three times the effect. So now when I increase the inner core, what I'm doing is I'm increasing the impact on those outside the church. Because they're going, wow, you know, I really res- I may not buy into what you're doing, but I respect that you're sold out to Jesus Christ, you're committed to the cause of Christ, and you believe what you say and you try to live out what you say in your life. That has an effect. That makes a difference on people. You think anybody is ever impressed by the nominal Christian? No one in society is ever recognized for complacency. You ever seen a statue of the complacent one? You ever teach your kids, hey, grow up and be complacent, be nominal? We don't do that anywhere in life, and yet we okay it in the body of Christ. We have to put a stop to that. And say, wherever I am, I'm moving closer to the inner core. If all I do is 1%, then I'm 1%. If I go 10%, I go 10%. If I go 20%, I go 20 But I am not content to be where I am. I want to go further, and I want to go deeper, and I want to go longer with God. That's what I know. You know, one of the things that's really amazing is that that when you study history, it really is enlightening to your understanding of the present time, that's why the revisionist history that we have going on uh, in America today, and the trying to ignore uh, some of the some of the dark places and the and the negative effects that we've had in our nation, are so harmful. Because we not only do we miss out on the lessons learned, we also miss out on the mistakes when we try to ignore that which has come before us. One of the people that's so interesting to study is. Uh, George Washington. And if you study the latest revisionist history books that, that the public schools and, and even some Christian schools promote, it tells you that George Washington really wasn't a committed Christian. He was kind of a deist. And then what that means is that you believe in God, he kind of got it all spinning, but he has no interaction in mankind. If you read that, don't believe it. That's just not true at all. All you have to do is go back, and you can read original documents from that period and from Washington himself, and you understand that when he referred to the Lord, that, cert- that immediately disqualifies him as a deist. When he talks about Jesus Christ and praying to Jesus Christ, that immediately disqualifies him as being a deist on planet Earth. But one, on one occasion in, in 1777, it was during Valley Forge, and that's a, a little area that's northwest of Philadelphia. He was there held up with his men. It was the winter. It was a horrible moment. You've probably seen some of those famous paintings, one of which he was kneeling by his horse there at Valley Forge, another in a in a boat crossing there at Valley Forge, and some of those kind of stick in our mind, and it, it they're just kind of patriotic moments for us as Americans, but they're more than that. Because it was in the winter of 1777 that Anthony Sherman, an officer assigned there to Washington, heard sobbings and cryings out into the woods, and he went out, and there he saw the president, uh, or general at the time, kneeling in the snow. And he stayed, and he listened to what he said. He journaled down what he said, and then he repeated it back to General Washington if this indeed what he, is what he said. That vision that Washington had in that moment, I'm going, to sh- I'm going to reveal to you, it was actually put into the Library of Congress in, in 1860, just prior to uh, the Civil War, and it's been retold, and there have been those who are skeptics and those who are revisionists who say, well, it didn't really happen. Well, it's had such a long history. It's been published so many times. I'm going to assume that it's correct and it's accurate, especially if those who do not believe and follow my God do not think it is. Because remember, those who who will take that approach will also take that approach to my Bible. There have always been those critics and skeptics in the world. That's, uh, That's really just a part of society. It's not going to change. But let me tell you the three visions, the three perils that, that Washington had in that moment in Valley Forge, and I'll recount them for you in brief uh, that you'll get the idea of it, uh, and you can look further into it if you're interested. But it begins with, he heard the words, Son of the Republic. It was spoken by a mysterious voice, and he was told to look and to listen. Listen. Now, in the Bible, you have mention of visions that we receive. And some visions are those which are like dreams, and they, they're panoramic in front of us. And others, an open vision is what you actually enter into, and you're a participant in the vision. Well, Washington had a vision, and this first uh, uh, revelation that he had was an angel standing between Europe and America. And it, the interpretation, it was the Revolutionary War. The angel was dipping water out of the ocean in the hollow of each hand and sprinkled some on America and cast the rest over to Europe. Immediately, he said, a cloud was raised from these countries and joined in the mid-ocean. For, it re- for a while it remained stationary and then moved slowly westward until it enveloped America in its murky folds." Sharp flashes of lightning, he said, gleamed through it at intervals, and I heard the smothered groans and cries of the American people. Then the second peril came. Son of the Republic, the same mysterious voice, look and learn. Dipping water out of the ocean in the hollow of each hand, he sprinkled on America and Europe, and then the words were battle against one another a bright angel with a crown of light and the word union bearing the American flag. He placed between a divided nation, and he said, Remember, you are brothers. Instantly, the inhabitants casting down their weapons and became friends. Clearly, a revelation of their coming, civil war, coming for him but now past for us. The third peril becomes even more interesting and more applicable for you and I because it was future from the Civil War and future from where we are today. Son of the Republic came the same mysterious voice, look and learn. Washington said, I saw herds of armed men moving with a cloud, marched by land and sailed by sea to America. I saw vast armies devastate the whole country and I heard cannons and the cries of millions in mortal combat. The angel descended from the heavens, attended by legions of white spirits. These immediately joined the inhabitants of America, and the dark cloud rolled back together with the armies it had brought, leaving the inhabitants of the land victorious. Now, what I find interesting about this vision that Washington had was, number one, it's future. Number one, it's conflict. But also, if we keep looking into it, I ask myself the question, would God... If this were, in fact, fixed, and this is what Washington saw, would God, in fact, divert that by the prayers and the righteousness of his people? Abraham pleaded with God to spare the city. God said he would if he could just find 50 righteous people. You see, God is so interesting in the way that he operates is that he allows us to shift history on behalf of the kingdom. God can set in place something, but God can elongate that time. He can shift the emphasis, and he can change his intended purpose for that moment because he relies on you as a partner in the kingdom of God. It's such an interesting thing about prayer. We always think that prayer is just fixed, and, you know, all we do is pray, God shows us what his will is, and then we go ahead and and just fold into it, and we like it. That's not moving the hand of God. That's not changing the course of history. That has nothing to do with the authority and the power that God has given us as his children. God has made you in his very image for a reason. You're an intercessor, and you're a prayer for a reason. God wants you to use that for the kingdom. That's why he said go out and heal the sick. He didn't say pray for the sick. He said heal the sick. Why would he say that unless he expected you to do something about it? Why did he say whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven unless he didn't mean it? He wants you to take authority in humility, in his power, and act as his agents on planet earth to change the world, to divert the the impending danger sometimes that comes because we were doing what we were called to do. Amen? General MacArthur during World War II, a lot of people don't know this. They don't know their history, but he was a great man of faith. He was a great student of the book of Revelation. He understood about the second coming. He understood about the, uh, Armageddon and other th- matters like that. And on one occasion he spoke these words. He said, history fails to record a single precedent in which nations subject to moral decay have not passed into political and economic decline. There has either been a spiritual awakening to overcome the moral lapse or a progressive deterioration leading to ultimate national disaster. Now, think what he just said. He said, or. In other words, if a country is content to lapse into failure and decline, then so be it. But on the other hand, if that country takes serious the claims of Christ and moves forward, then there can be a totally different outcome. The amazing thing that a lot of people don't know about American history is that prior to the Revolutionary War, America was in a a pitiful state of moral decline. In fact, so bad was the situation that students on Harvard campus were burning Bibles and forcing presidents to resign. Alcoholism at the time represented 10% of the population, or about 300,000 people were alcoholics prior to the American Revolutionary War. There was, seemed to be a, a decline and no hope. Little did they know what was coming. In a small town called Princeton in New Jersey, an almost blind, monotone pastor who God had used and God had put his spirit on, named Jonathan Edwards, stood up in his congregation and he preached a, a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. They said his eyesight was so bad he would hold his manuscript in front of his eyes just to be able to see it. But it wasn't in the delivery that the power would be found. It would be in the Spirit of God that the power would be found. And as he read it, people began to literally fall out of their chairs and call on God for repentance, and thus began the first great awakening in America. The first great awakening was also fueled by another group that many people have never heard of, and that's the Black Robe uh, Regiment. Those were called that because they were the clergy that wore the black robes, and they were so powerful in proclaiming the coming revelation and the coming revolution of America. They were so powerful in calling people to repentance and a nation to stand that they indeed were instrumental in bringing about the American Revolution. They were instrumental in those words about God being in those documents that we so revered today. You see, we can make a difference in our world. We can bring about revival, change, and radical kind of things that no one ever imagined. I believe God is calling, is calling America back. I believe if you listen, you can hear his voice through all the clutter, through all the media feed, through all the distractions we have in society today. You can hear that still small voice that's calling us back. In Hosea chapter 6 and verse 1, listen to what God says. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn. You see, sometimes God tears that he might heal, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind up. You know, when you study empires, it's interesting because all empires seem to have a similar kind of model that they follow. Not intentionally, but it is the nature of an empire. And as you hear these, it's also reminiscent of how you grow as a person and how things radically change in your life. In that first stage of an empire, it is pioneers who inspire the vision through sacrifice. Nothing significant in your life will ever happen apart from sacrifice. If you're not really setting apart yourself To say, I'm willing to pay any price to advance the kingdom, to protect my family, to guard my community, to do this or that, you're not going to see the outcome. If you've ever started a business, you know it costs you everything to start a business. You risk everything on the idea that you've got that it's going to be successful. And so it is with a nation. And then as a nation is founded, it begins to expand through conquest, it begins to look in, in America on the East Coast. They said, let's move west. Let's expand. Let's, let's build cities. Let's build factories. Let's expand. And many nations around the world expanded through colonization. But expansion was always a part of it. The other thing that happens is as the armies grow stronger, the enemies respect the power of that newly formed nation. It becomes a deterrent to war not an encourager of war. The same thing's true in your life. As you grow spiritually and empower, as you walk in the Spirit of God and allow God to work through you, you take the authority given to you by God. Guess what? The enemies of God, Satan's demonic forces, they respect the power in you, and they leave you alone. You see, you don't become weaker because of power. You become stronger. You don't become less protected. You become more protected because of the Spirit of God in you, and there is a respect. I love that scripture where the man was trying to cast out the demon, and he really didn't know Jesus. And you know, it's bad when the the demon speaks back to you, and he doesn't know you. He said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? When you're not known in hell, you're in trouble. When hell doesn't respect you, you're in trouble. You want to come to the place where every demon in hell knows your name. You want to come to the place where you not only rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but in 10-foot-high letters in hell it says, you are alive. Fear that man. Fear that woman. Fear that boy. Fear that girl. Because when they harness the power in the Holy Spirit, they are totally unstoppable in Almighty God. Amen? As you move on to this expansion and this understanding that entitlement begins to settle in. Entitlement will settle in in your Christian life. When you first got saved, do you remember that day? All you wanted to do was pray and tell everybody about Jesus. Then before long, you got worried about if the seats were comfortable, if the temperature was cool, and if the music was too loud or the lights were too low. That's entitlement. When entitlement begins to slip in, vision is reduced. And when vision is reduced, expansion is impossible. You cannot grow as a Christian if you're entitled. You cannot grow as a Christian if you're offended. God has called us to be totally unoffended. Jesus, it says of him, that though reviled, he, was not re- he did not revile in return. He did not open his mouth, but as a sheep going to the slaughter, he was faithful unto God. When you're totally unoffendable, when you walk in the Spirit and you give up entitlement, God can really do something cool in your life. Amen? I mean, that's what we want to be, isn't it? And then we understand the next phase and this final phase that happens in, a, in an empire is that moral decay opens the door for the enemy. Whenever you begin to compromise in your life, whenever you begin to give up ground to the enemy, all of a sudden through that moral decay, you begin to lose the power of God. You don't see things the same way. And many of you today can look back and say it was a year or five years ago or ten years ago that I was so committed. What happened? I started with a vision. I started with power. I started with this and with that, but little by little entitlement and moral decay entered into my life, and I ceased to have the power of the Spirit of God that I wanted, and I moved from being radical to committed to nominal. And now no one respects me at at work and at school, and I don't even know what to say because I don't have any power to defend my position. You see, you're out here powerless. You're hanging out. You're just going to heaven, but that's all you got. You got fire insurance. In here, your house doesn't burn. You see the difference? This is why we need this. You say, well, if I do that, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with all my time? Seriously? Really? Really? We all got the same amount of time. It's just how you use it. God doesn't take more of your time. He just says, Let me show you how you more effectively can use the time you have. Instead of kind of him hawing around about Christ for 20 minutes, in two seconds, you can tell him exactly who, who's, who's Lord. That's the big difference. I mean, which is more powerful? Which is going to give you, you know, have more effect? Is it going to be a, a five watt bulb or a laser beam? We got enough five watt bulbs, they're dim and boring. I'm talking about Christians. Who's he talking about bulbs? We got enough five-watt Christians. We need need some laser beams that look someone in the eye and say, hey, I love you, and you may not agree with me, but let me tell you something, without Jesus Christ, there's no hope. That's all you got to do. You say, well, I'm afraid. That's because you're nominal. God has not given us a spirit of, of fear, but of love of power and a sound mind. That's what a radical has. That's where we need to be. Hey, if you walk out of here and you're 1% more radical than you are today, I'm happy. Amen? You say, well, you, you just want me to quit my job. And No, I don't. I want you to keep working and, and paying the tithe. And you know what I want? I want to see you prosper in such a way that you have all the glory goes unto Jesus. Amen? That's really what we need. Because when God raises up an army, he, he gets all kinds of people, but they all got the same mission. There's the enemy, let's go after him. I'm not the enemy. Other Christians aren't the enemy. The enemy's the devil. Satan, He's a the, he's the liar. He's the murderer from the very beginning. Let's go after him. Second Chronicles calls us to something as a nation. He says, if you've recognized you had a great start, and you recognize that you've gone through expansion and you've gone through power building and the enemy respects you, but then all of a sudden entitlement slipped in and moral decay slipped in, God says this, if my people who are called by my name, he doesn't say if the world will pray, the world is doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, worldly things. The Christians are the problem. We're not doing what we're supposed to do. If my people will do what? Look what they need to do. Who are called by my name. Will humble themselves and pray. Humility and then pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. The nation doesn't need to turn from their wicked ways. We do so we can help them understand why it's important to do that. You see the difference? I hear people all the time complaining about how ungodly the world is. Well, they're supposed to be. That's their job. They don't know God. I don't know if you saw on the news, but on the campus in uh, uh, Oklahoma, a state uh, campus there, they brought the crane in, and they cut the cross off the chapel that was donated there uh, 60 years ago, and they removed all the Bibles out because they got one letter, from an organization out of Washington, D.C., separation of church and state, instead of fighting, instead of calling out for money for, to help with the legal bills, what they did was they just succumbed, and all they have there now is a building that was paid for not by the university but by private funds without a cross on the steeple and no Bible in the building, and it's just an empty vessel now. It has no meaning on that campus other than there were not enough Christians who had enough guts to stand up and be the church of Jesus Christ? That's really what it comes down to. And it occurred to me when I saw that, it was, a, it was an, an analogy or a metaphor of Christians today. There's so many of us who've clipped off the cross of the steeple because we don't want to offend, we've removed the word from our heart because we've got other things filling that same space and we're just an empty vessel floating around, and maybe we're nominal, maybe we're less than nominal. I like it when it gets quiet. He says, when you do all those things, look what it says, then. I love that word, then. I'm not going to do it till then. When you do that, then. Are you doing that? Are you calling on my name, humbling yourself, praying, seeking my face, and turning from your wicked ways, if you will, then I'm going to hear from heaven. And when I, when I hear from heaven, what I'm going to do is I'm going to forgive their sin. Whose sin? Not the world. Your sin and my sin. I'll forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. You see, because here's the truth. Only God can heal America. Only God can heal America. America was founded on the principle of God, and only God can sustain it. Only God can heal it. Only God can restore it. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. And, you know, I got this picture in the tomb, okay? I don't know what was going on in those three days, but I love this little analogy here. I can almost see Jesus in the second day. And he's kind of starting to wake up. You know how you kind of wake up in the morning? You know, you're kind of droggy. You go, you know, I think tomorrow's the day. Kind of waking up. And some of you are kind of starting to wake up, kind of getting what I'm saying. in your second day. You say, I'm a second day person right now. And all of a sudden, look what it says. He will revive us on the second day, and the third day he'll raise us up. See, it's kind of like when you, all of a sudden the alarm goes off, you push the snooze. You ever push the snooze? Anybody, snooze? Anybody got a snooze? Come on. Who's got a snooze alarm? Anybody ever use it? Snooze alarms were designed by God. They're a blessing of life. Amen? Right? Okay, but all of a sudden, then you go, then it comes back and hits you again, and it's louder. Bonk, 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 bonk. Are you with me? Say it with me. Bonk, bonk. Okay, got it. Right? Spirit of God, that's what he's doing in your heart right now. He's giving you the alarm. He says the snooze is over. It's time to get up. Time to rise up from the dead and be the church. It's time to be radical for Jesus. It's time to make a difference in the world. And it says that we may live in his sight. I love that. He will raise us up. We might live in his sight. I just love the sight, being in the presence of God. Love living in his sight. I get to live in the presence of God. Awakenings are, are a term that are used for a, a massive revival. It's the idea that it doesn't just affect a church or a little area. It, it affects sometimes a whole nation or a world. Awakenings are usually Preceded by a time of spiritual depression. When you study them historically, apathy and gross sin, in which a majority of nominal Christians are hardly different from members of secular society. This is how they start to wake up a little bit. Then there's an individual or a small group of God's people who become conscious of their sins. Okay, now we're starting to understand what it means here. We're out here. Now all of a sudden we start to become conscious of our sins. God starts to get a few people's attention. A few people say, you know, I think I could pray. You know, I think I could do that. I think I could be more radical than I am today. I think I could go another 1%, 5%, 10%. I know I could do that. And it begins, your spirit begins to to become uh, awake, conscious of their sins uh, and of their backslidden condition, and they vow to forsake all that is displeasing to God. And then... Some Christians begin to yearn for the manifestation of God's power. I want God's power. I'm not content to be a Christian. I want want God's power in my life. A leader of leaders will arise with a prophetic insight into the cause and the remedy of the problems, and all of a sudden a new awareness of the holy and pure character of the Lord is present. And you find yourself like Isaiah the prophet in chapter 6 where he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe was filling the temple. And I said, woe is me. When he saw the holy God, it contrasted who he was. He said, I'm unclean, and I need to be touched. And guess what happened? This seraphim flew with six wings, six wings, two it flew, two it covered its feet, two it covered its eyes, and they cried out in Tiffany, Holy, Holy, Holy. Throughout all of heaven, their job is to cry, Holy, Holy, Holy. 24 hours a day, it's all they do. Holy, 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 Holy is the Father, Holy is the Son, Holy is the Spirit, Holy, Holy, Holy. It's heaven's reminder that God is holy and that we are to be holy as he is holy. It's a calling back. God will send a latter-day revival. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 3. Let us now, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain of the earth. We were in prayer this morning at, uh, on the dock before first service. And uh, Sarah prayed about the rain. I just had a picture of the rain coming. She didn't know what I was preaching on. Band got up. They didn't know what I was preaching on the rain. They got up and they sang about the coming rain. I just love the way the Spirit of God puts things together. Let me move on to C.H. Spurgeon. This is what he said. Spurgeon said, Brethren, we want renewed appearances, fresh manifestations, new visitations on high. And I commend to those of you who are getting on in life. Translated, older. Older that while you thank God for the past, look back, have all the great memories you can of the past. Look back with joy to his visits to you in your early days. Put them behind you, and now seek and ask for a second visitation of the Most High. Amen? Don't we want a fresh visitation of God in our life? Fresh power coming on our life? Radical obedience, said David Platt to Christ is not easy. It's not comfort, not health, not wealth, not prosperity in this world. Radical obedience to Christ risks losing all these things, but in the end such risks find reward in Christ, and he is more than enough for us.